everyone. Today I'm joined by Ben from Bands Chemist and Glacial Tomb, and we're really hoping that this conversation addresses some of the harder mental health aspects, but as well as all things music. Thank you so much, Ben, for joining me. We're finally connecting, and I guess you've been kind of busy. You're wrapping up Glacial Tomb things, aren't you, at the moment? Yes, yes. Well, well first, thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, uh, we are about halfway through the new Glacial Tomb record. We uh, we're in the studio this last weekend tracking drums, and uh, we're about to start tracking guitars and bass uh, this weekend. And then, uh, you know, vocals and extra layers and stuff, and it never ends. And no sooner do we send it off to get mixed than Chemist leaves for tour. And, you know, the joys of being a professional musician, 21st century. I mean, I, I love Chemist, um, and I'm hoping to get into to Glacial Tomb a little bit. But interestingly enough, how I came across your path more on a personal note was when Nuclear Blast, I think is that correct, did like all the mental health, world mm -hmm. mental health, I thought that was such a brilliant initiative of them. And I had never, I had no idea. Uh, and some of the things that you were touching on and talking about uh, really connected with me. And that's why I want to do this. So I'm, I'm super glad that you are willing to talk about it, which is, you know, such a great, a great step. So something that I would love to talk to you about is we mentioned like the joy of pets and their role in maintaining like balance in art and you know just in everyday life and I feel like pets kind of get overlooked on the mental health realms a little bit yeah I think that's a really interesting point I I feel like uh people who live with mental illness and have pets get it immediately the moment you say mental health and pet they're like yes and everyone has well maybe not everyone but it, it feels like most people who fall into that category can easily you know provide a half dozen anecdotes off the top of their head about how you know whether in a very mild uh sort of situation or a very serious one you know their their furry companions have helped stabilize them have you know been resourcing in their lives and yet i think that in the broader discourse around pets uh, around animals um i mean it, and this also ties into the broader discourse around mental health mm. that um it's still trivialized the same way that discussions around mental health are they're trivialized and they're stigmatized and i mean and you see this you know with the ways in which people talk about service animals where they are uh you know the, the very concept of the service animal is sort of discarded as like well this is just for people who don't want to be without their pets and look that might be true yeah. And there may be some people for whom pets aren't critical lifesavers, sure, but more often than not, that's not the case. I would contend that those are outliers and that for those of us that live with mental illness of any sort, I myself live with a uh, very severe depression. Mm. Uh, I was diagnosed a few years ago with massive depressive disorder. Um, you know, that diagnosis, first of all, helped illuminate you know, the importance of my relationship with the animals in my life, mm -hmm. but has also then reinforced the importance of having them around, something that comes up for me in therapy a lot. Uh, we have uh, two delightful boys, Mojo and Merlin. Mojo is, uh, we call him a rot hound. He's a mixture of a Rottweiler and a Basset hound. And Merlin is a Bassador, so part Basset, part Lab. And they are delightful and cuddly, and they are really smart we've always had bassets in the home but it's yeah. nice that this particular group of bassets are, are, are smarter and we have a, a cat named Avain as well and the three of them have provided not only me but also my wife with a lot of love and stability an important i think uh sort of visceral reminder of the world around you you can on bad days, you can sort of spiral into your own psychic abyss and having a cat mm. in your arms or having a dog come over and nuzzle you can really help sort of jolt you out of that. And not that it, you know, cures anything, not that it stops a depressive episode, but it is kind of um, a flotation device. Yeah, I I like to, uh, something I've been trying to work on is um, my vagus nerve, my nervous system, it's quite quite dysregulated adrenals like all those things that kind of come into play and how then that affects mood cortisol and definitely having an animal like remember when we were little and we used to like hug toys or like carry them around I feel like it's the same thing but it's just like on a different like level I do wonder what society would look like if we we had more pets like everywhere like just helping yeah. out like in everyday 
existence. I definitely think it would make, it's really strange when I've been traveling a lot at the moment too, to see the countries where animals have much more rights and they can kind of go everywhere into shops and versus Australia, which is still quite incredibly rigid with mm. with those. Well, first of all, I, I had no idea that was the case in Australia. Um, it's not often that I get to say, well, we're doing it better in America, but uh, perhaps hey, in this hey. case. Well, look, to my knowledge, and I, I could be corrected, but I have a very good family friend and um, who has early onset dementia and had also, he had a service dog. So even with that, the amount of times he would have trouble with Ubers or taxis, and he's very uh, vocal about it too, but it really staggers me that we're a little bit behind the mark just in general for animals, for all, uh, you know, for children who might need animals for all those types of things. You know, and I think especially um, as a man in America who has been socialized into, um, you know, Western, you know, modern masculinity that is, you know, largely devoid of emotion. And I, mm. you know, this is something that I, uh, unsurprisingly, have been working on in therapy for many years and have been working on with my, my wife for many years. Um, having animals around and and feeling uh or at least developing the feeling of being comfortable and confident to express my love for them has helped me um sort of mature with regard to my own ability to express love for people oh wow so and, it's translated right okay yeah and, yeah. and to feel love uh, again another thing that we as men are mm -hmm. not taught how to do and and i say all of this you know with parents who did uh, an atypically good job with having, you know, an emotionally, um, I guess, like open sort of uh, uh, household and, you know, encouraging me to feel emotions. But my parents were boomers. So like, you know, a good job from boomer parents is still uh, <laughs> boomer parents, you know? Yeah. But, and it just, you know, begs the question. It's like, you know, if you were having like the atypical good upbringing, then there's, there's all the other spectrum. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The sliding the scale. didn't have that. Yeah. I have a cat for the first time ever. I rescued her and her mm -hmm. name's Darkness because she's black, but I'm not sure whether she's helping my mental health or hindering my mental health. I've always had dogs. I've always had German shepherds and Australian cattle dogs. And I do I do feel like you fit into one category of dogs. I know you have both, but yes. if you had to choose, could you choose one? <laughs> uh, oh, dogs 10 times out of 10. It's interesting with us because our cat kind of is a dog. Oh. Um my wife adopted her shortly before we got together jen and i um great name i, I was i was gonna actually make that joke and then you, you beat me to it, yeah uh, jen and i've been together for uh just over 11 years now and uh so she adopted the cat just a few months before we started dating you know not only has the cat been around the, the two of us her entire life but also i had a dog already at the time a, a basset beagle mix named Patton that she like grew up around we just sort of were affectionate towards her the same way we were Patton. And so, mm -hmm. you know, often cats, if you go to like scratch their belly or whatever, they might bite or hiss or whatever. She loves to be carried. She loves to have her belly, you know, scratched. She loves ear scratches. She oh, is a man. miniature basset hound. I think it's good in a way, like it still keeps you, if you have got mental health issues, like it, it keeps you with a routine. You have to be responsible for someone Absolutely. else. Yeah. I like mean, I, literally yeah. right before we got on this call, my wife and I had just taken the boys out for a walk. One of the things that <clears throat> nobody tells you about becoming a professional musician at this point in human history is that so much of your time is spent sitting down in front of a computer. Like, oh, not that yeah. I ever lived under the, the sort of delusion of like, oh, I would just be out living the rock star life. But like, I spend so much of my time emailing, um, in Zoom meetings, mm. I'm just recording, sitting in front of a computer. And it's easy to forget how important just getting up and walking around is for mental health. Yeah, and that's so true. And to your point with, with routine, like no matter how bad a day I'm having, the boys still need to go for a walk. They Absolutely. still need to be fed. They still need to play. There are certainly times where it feels like that is a nearly impossible task. But mm. then I get up and do it because I don't have a choice. They can't feed themselves. If yeah. they could, they would, but they can't. And being forced to just get back on my feet, you know, it, again, it doesn't make the dark thoughts go away. It doesn't make things not hurt, but it helps you keep things in perspective at least a little bit to remind yeah. yourself like, yeah, you know what? I might be in a pretty dark place in this moment, but it doesn't change the fact that this little dude next to me who loves me and for whom I am his world needs me. Owe it to him. This is the contract. This is the contract with love, right? 
we're gonna take care of each other until one exactly. of us dies. That's how yeah. love works. Yeah. Um, and that always, on bad days, it helps keep me going, and on good days, it feels like an absolute blessing to to know that things are going well, to feel the literal and proverbial sunshine, and then to look down. And especially because Mojo really likes to come in here and sleep while I'm I'm working on stuff. That's nice. <laughs> he's actually I can hear him. He's outside the door, like leaned up against the door. Fine, Dad. I don't even care. You know, it's like, what are you talking about in there? What are you, yeah. what are you, ta- are you talking, about talking about me? About me Dad? Yeah, yeah. Dad. <laughs> they know. They know. They do, yeah. So as we do things more and more in front of the computer, then how has that come into play with your mental health? And what are your thoughts around that? It is both isolating, but it is also motivating and empowering. And it, it certainly can lead to a sense of, or not even a sense of withdrawal, but it can, it can just sort of gradually remove you from social interaction. I've certainly had that experience, but it does also facilitate collaboration, especially remote collaboration in new ways where I, you see more and more people with international projects where, mm. cool, you know, you play guitar, I play guitar, we got a bass player that lives in Chile. Uh, we got a keyboardist that lives in France. You know, and a drummer lives in Japan. There's no, you know, once upon a time for that sort of thing to work, everybody would have to be able to physically meet somewhere or Mm -hmm. one person would write everything, record it all, send it to everyone else. Now you can collaborate remotely and you can also be more, you can have greater agency in the kind of art that you create because you're not beholden to studio availability. You're not financially beholden to, Mm -hmm. I mean, even a, a good deal of renting a studio space like i'm engineering the new glacial tomb record so we're not having to pay for an engineer but we still you know a studio in denver we're very lucky you know i made 250 300 bucks a day but in big cities new york la you spend a thousand dollars and for a couple of hundred dollars you can have the stuff at home to do whatever any kind of music folk rock black metal folk and black metal you know yeah whatever whatever you're trying to do I want to say something that could be a little bit triggering or controversial, but I think because you're so considered and you've done so much work and there is that self-awareness, I think that we can we can kind of go there and, and test the waters a little bit. I feel like so many people that I've spoken to, and I will say men, and this is just in my experience, of course, and my interactions with them, it's not that they're labeling mental health it's not that they're saying that they have mental health but i think a lot of people that love them be that uh romantic partners family friends it's such a fine line it's like are you just placing that label on you do you truly not have the tools do you not want to do the work is it just an excuse that you're saying because you want to do what you want to do and actually that's a deeper situation of more you know, traits of someone that's a little bit more selfish. What, like, where do we go with this? What, what do we do? Those very nice things about uh, how I, 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 you know, sort of engage with this stuff. It's um, so important. Like, it's just, I would, ju- I just wish we could have forums. Like, instead of having like these massive concerts, we should have you yeah, guys I mean, sitting there talking about stuff. You know. So I, I think you, you've hit on a couple of important things, and, and a lot of it does go back to a singular root cause, which is masculinity. Mm. And that masculinity doesn't, you know, sort of, how can I put this? That uh, 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 culturally approved forms of masculinity do not provide space for uh, being emotive unless it's anger or jealousy or things, you know, tangentially connected to anger. Do not provide uh, for relationships between parents and sons, specifically fathers and sons, that are emotionally available on both parts, not just in terms of being permissive and saying you as my son, you can feel what you feel and that's great. And like, that's an important first step, but I honestly don't know a single guy who can point to their dad, their relationship with their dad and say, he modeled the kind of emotions and emotional availability I want to have. My dad sure as hell didn't. Again, like I got lucky. My I like I had a great dad. My mom is great. Um, our relationship, you know, it, my mom and I are still, you know, very close. Talk almost every day. 
until my dad passed away, my dad and I talked every single day from the day I moved out until the day he, well, not the day he died, but like a month before he died. Like we, he was my best friend, but I didn't know anything about my dad's heart. I didn't know anything about my dad's feet. So part of it, I think, does begin with, you know, unpacking all of the, all of what isn't in masculinity. And, and I think we've done a decent job in the last few years culturally talking about toxic masculinity in terms of what it enables, but mm. we haven't talked about what it's missing. Well, I'm oh, sorry, not what toxic masculinity is missing, but what masculinity you mentioned a sort of lack of tools or a lack of like repertoire for men. I mean, the fact that any men are even talking about, yeah, I have ADHD, I have depression, I have anxiety is I think a, a market improvement over five years ago, 10 years ago. For sure. Um, for sure. I mean, it took me a long time to make a sort of inner peace with the idea of having mental illness. Mm -hmm. because not only is there the large stigma around it but for men to acknowledge that you are mentally ill is presumed to be an implicit acknowledgement of weakness of failure of inability to be a real man mm. and i mean it this is look i've been in therapy every week for um almost seven years now mm -hmm. and like i still have to work at this really hard every yeah. day and i don't you're also catching me on a day where i do feel particularly like present and eloquent there are times where I, where i'm yeah. just like me angry me hide from world some things that you touched on there too is like and the the flip side of that is like as a, a young woman watching your father you know, I, I mean and then i feel like heavy metal gets a really bad rap for like uh bad behaviors toxic behaviors oh sure yeah yeah right but then I also think there's a flip side too of that is like, well, actually that still goes on, but I'm wondering if someone of your insight and emotional attunement can uh, call out bad behavior. Like, would you call out bad behavior or would you identify, Hey, I think you've got a problem with X, Y, Z. Do you, do you ever do that? I, Cause this is where I feel like the gaps yeah. are, you know, like I feel like, male friends aren't helping male friends from what I've observed in or men aren't helping it's like well you're just these little floating islands and you just got to work it out yourself we take mental health very seriously in chemists and in glacial tomb as well but in chemists um uh we all live with severe uh I don't want to say mental illness because it's not my place to, to to say how other people want to label themselves I am severely mentally ill uh I'll say that everyone in chemists has a lot of crap they deal with in their minds. And mm -hmm. um, so uh, uh, I, I guess a trigger warning for what I'm about to say. I'm in, uh, at the beginning of 2020, um, I ha was uh, at the bottoming out of the worst spiral of my life. It had started at the end of the previous summer when one of my best friends killed himself. Mm -hmm. And I know we, we prefer to say the term died by suicide, but the concept of him killing himself is what lodged in my brain. Right. And I, I have experienced suicidal ideation before. Yeah. But as that year went on, it became more and more present. And at the beginning of 2020, um, I was uh, I had not gotten to the point where I was going to where I had made a plan, but I was days away from making a plan. Mm -hmm. And I broke down and I told my wife and I said, I can't stop thinking about dying. Like, I don't, I don't want to live like this. What do we do? Yeah. Called my therapist. I got into a psychiatrist immediately, got medicated. And as I started that journey of recovery, uh, one of the things that I saw looking back through, you know, my adult years is the absence of communication around mental health, uh, uh, around suicidality um thing other than a joking way where it's like oh things are so bad i might just kill myself or yeah and i i really do want to deep dive into this because i also have um suicidal ideation uh and uh, i i class it more as like a pain of just mm -hmm. like this isn't getting any better 
exactly like and and i'm high functioning i'm high functioning depressive anxiety so people don't know i can be like jumping doing this editing da, da, da. but um you know that's in my very private private times i would yeah. struggle with it and i just it boggles me to this day that you still can't really talk about it because as soon as you say oh i've had suicidal thoughts it's like this oh we need to we need to put you on suicide watch it's just like no just hang on let me let me talk about it let's just process what's going on here and work out the pain or the grief or the emotion behind because you can't put a shape on it sometimes yeah and it's not i i think there's a a a particularly reductive uh, uh dominant image of suicidal ideation in america that it's a person who is just unable to to take whatever the world is giving them and they just want out and for me it is an existential horror it is that i fundamentally do not think that life is good or fair or getting better or or getting better (laughs) and i still believe these things wholeheartedly i i i I think that uh existence is um uh, an unfair burden placed upon us through the hubris of our parents but I also recognize that ending my life produces more pain than it alleviates. Um, that what it, it and, and I again I say this in a moment where I am in control of my my emotions and my faculties. Uh, in my darker moments, all I can think about is is I don't want it to hurt anymore. Yes. And so, as I began my process of recovery as I started taking medication and started seeing a psychiatrist and we changed some of the practices in therapy, which as an aside, had I not already been in therapy, like I don't think I would have had the tools to even articulate to my partner that I was thinking about ending my life. I -hmm. probably would have just done it. And so that, that is just to say like, everybody should try therapy. I think everybody probably needs to be in therapy, but everybody should at least try it. Um, but anyway, so on this process of recovery, one of the things that I identified was that I had a lot of uh, baggage around being in chemists and a lot of baggage around being a musician. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with internalized capitalist guilt and, and sure. masculinity and things like that. But what I did is I made a point of saying, y'all, look, I'm, I am messed up. And I think we all might be, but we need to be talking about ourselves and our relationships with one another um because we're not we never have Mm. and when we feel close or we don't feel close we never acknowledge what causes that and it is absolutely mental health related Mm. and so we talk like even if we're not practicing we have a a zoom phone call whatever you want to call it zoom session a zoom meeting whatever every other week where we talk about business stuff but we also check in with each other we check in with each other at the beginning of practice now. We check in with each other on tour and we say, hey, not just like, oh, it seems like maybe something's off. But like, how's everybody doing? Everything, things haven't settled down yet. How's everybody doing? And then mm-hmm. often whoever brings it up was like, because here's how I'm doing to sort of break the ice so no one feels like they have to be the first to speak. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we've nailed it down. I don't think there is a perfecting it. I think like anything else in life, you work at it and it's the work that is what's important there is no end you know there's no happily ever after you just get better at this stuff hopefully we shouldn't jump to conclusions that just because someone is feeling particularly low that i'm gonna get all my pills and like swallow them like it's not necessarily that it's more like i'm in pain i'm hoping that this will i'll swing out the other side because i've known from my experience too the harder i fall the quicker i usually yeah, sure. like flip out and i do feel a bit manic when that happens it's quite oh, bizarre sure. yeah, yeah 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 i think you make a really good point there that like so many other things i mean literally probably everything in mental health is a spectrum right mm, yeah and it's that you know even the idea of suicidal ideation does not manifest uniformly throughout people's lives um and, and i see this as someone who knows that he is absolutely capable of ending his own life um mm. that the way that I think about that and the way that other people do doesn't not only does it not manifest the same way, but it doesn't warrant the same reaction. And that a lot of the adages we have like, oh, well, if someone's talking about it, then they're not going to do it. No, 
no, do not buy into that crap for a second. No. If someone says, I'm thinking about hurting myself, take them seriously, yeah. and, but but in a respectful way. Yeah, you don't need to like lock them up and put them in a straight jacket. And you don't need to, to leap to those conclusions, like you need to be put away, because it's just yeah. so fear-inducing as well. What you need to do is listen. And if someone, I'm, and not everybody can ask for help in the way or to the extent that they need to. And I think that that's where the depth of a given relationship comes into play. You know, mm -hmm. if you don't know someone very well and they're talking about this, be there for them, listen to them, but also make sure that someone who does know them better, you know, is looped into this conversation ASAP. Someone who is, you know, perhaps physically proximate to them, who, you know, would know if they have a history of yeah. whatever. Mm. So the, the, the thing about chemists, it, I, and I recognize that it's unique, that we have worked to make and continue to work this, continue to work to make this space available in the band. Um, but you'd asked a question, and I don't know if you were asking this in this manner, but um, about, you know, sort of calling out toxic behavior mm -hmm. or calling out how can I say this? Uh, the kind of performativity I think that you're you're getting at, mm. where it's like, oh yeah, I live with mental health issues, and then that's enough. Um, I don't. I have to fight my own internalized desires for martyrdom, and and you know, yeah. an internalized Superman complex to want to swoop in and 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 you know, call out all the the evil doers and and offer my heart to all of the kind people. But I've realized through therapy that I only have so much gas in the tank and that if I'm not putting myself first, I'm no use to anybody. Correct. Um, so I do think that it is on all men to, um, I guess for lack of a better term, police other men's behavior. But yes. To also recognize our own responsibilities therein, like our own complicitness within that. And not just an individual, like, I mean, we could point to any number of examples in rock and metal of, mm -hmm. you know, singular high profile men, you know, doing really, really bad stuff. Yeah. And I could tweet about whatever Marilyn Manson all day. It changes nothing. It makes me feel self-righteous. What changes is actually talking to other men and saying, because Marilyn Manson's not going to listen to me. <laughs> Marilyn Manson's not going to listen to Marilyn Manson's going to do what Marilyn Manson wants exactly. to do. Exactly. And if you love him, you're not even going to care about his personal, you know exactly. what I mean? Like you separate the art from the artist for Which sure. Which is a whole other thing. Yeah. Yeah. But what I can do is talk to my bandmates. You know, I like the fact that I've worked with people I love to create spaces in two bands where, uh, you know, two separate sets of men can talk about their feelings in a place where they feel safe to do that. And that hopefully they're able to, process things so that when they go back to their you know their marriages and their their other friends whatever kind of relationships they can be a little bit more cognizant of what they're doing a little bit more present um, be a little bit more self-aware of what they say and what they do and that hopefully we're all continuing to spread that out yeah and also that in talking about my own life with mental illness i mm. hope that it encourages other not just men to everyone um but in particular men who don't have uh those spaces don't have access or at least think they don't have access to those spaces to to find them i'm not trying to position myself as like come talk to me because i ain't a therapist uh yeah. and thankfully i haven't really had that that problem of fans like coming to me and being like ah here's what's going on in my life because like <laughs> i don't have the the required degrees to handle that yeah nor do I have the emotional resources to carry anybody else's burdens when, you know, some days I'm just treading water. Um, yeah. to, to go back to your first point about men, you know, naming it, I, I don't want to, sorry, that sentence didn't make sense. To go back to men naming whatever sort of uh, struggles with mental health that they're experiencing, I don't want to mm -hmm. totally downplay that because for a lot of men, that is a victory. And I think we do need to recognize that. I think it's a dialectic, like so many things. We hold in one hand and we say, yes. I'm really, I'm I'm proud of men in my life that can say, I live with depression, I live with ADHD, and still say, that's beautiful, you're doing that, now what are you gonna do with that? 
it's difficult. Like, what do you do with people that, so that there's, and you're like, oh my God, if you just read this book, if you maybe listen to this pod, but then I've just learned, I, I can't do any, I, I can't make them do, it's so difficult because I'm such a, I've got people pleasing, fixing problems, codependent issues. Sure, yeah. But at the same time, just as a, I'm like, I really cared about this person. I really want him to be those those amazing aspects that are in there but they just get clouded and I tried and I think it's not and then it kind of got messy in in the trying and the the overextending and stuff and probably overstepping boundaries but coming from a good place but also having to realize well I can't do anything about this but like a year later I'll still see the same thing and I just it breaks my heart so I don't know how to like address Like I feel like a lot of women in particular, so my where I'm going with this is mm-hmm. I wondered with you and your your wife and if you're happy to talk about it, like I'm really interested in that interested in the evolution of that. Like, did you obviously there had to be a discussion about like what your condition was, what that entails, and then how how do you communicate it like when you're in um a, in an episode or a negative headspace i'm not sure if i've got the right the the right sure, language yeah, to no, place no, on no, it that makes sense and so I, I really want to talk about that because it can i feel like the miscommunication with mental illness in a in a specifically in a romantic relationship whatever that is whoever that involves um it it's tricky so the language that you use and the, i i just want to because i feel like that's such an undoing of people in this day and age it's, I don't know if that was I mean, eloquently put. But, absolutely. Yeah. No, 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 it's wonderful. I, I think you're, you're hitting on something really important there. Um, first of all, it's tricky. It's messy. You know, in anything of any good relationship is, I don't say messy. That seems like a, a look. Any good relationship um, is multi-layered and nuanced and complicated because yes. any good relationship is more than just a sing like love in a singular dimension you don't just love someone for this one characteristic you love them holistically and that means you also accept the the less than ideal parts of them um and i think this also includes what you were talking about earlier you can't make anyone do anything yeah um and i say this as someone who is very can be and historically has been very stubborn like I do things when I want to do things, how I want to do things. Right. Damn Let's you talk if you're about trying this. to. Oh, it is absolutely. Look, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. I grew up in Mississippi. It oh, is dang. Southern fried masculinity. That's what it is. It, like regionalized masculinities are absolutely a thing. And I grew up poor. I've never too. heard of. So I've never thought of it like that. It's working class Southern, yeah. you know, masculinity, and then combined with the kinds of privilege that I enjoy as a white man, as even mm. though I'm still broke, a highly educated white man. Oh, but but as far as the communication part of this goes, I mean, it's it's a, there's a lot of getting it wrong, you know, like both yeah, on my part of getting it wrong in terms of trying to communicate what I'm experiencing. And again, like trying to also grow a vocabulary where there was not one around. Oh, I love and that. Emotion and, 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 and pain and learning how to talk about you know, pain in, in something other than an angry way, which is the only way that most men mm. are ever taught to talk about pain. This yeah. thing hurts, so I hate it. Well, I mean, that might be true, but also this thing hurts, and that can be the sentence. This thing hurts. Yeah. You know, my grief hurts. My struggles with, you know, life hurt um, uh, from her end in terms of like yeah. learning how to ask questions in ways that, and also like learning how to ask in ways that, might be unfair that I, I respond poorly to, but yep. she still says, okay, well that like that is objectively a perfectly fine way to ask that, but he doesn't respond well to that. So how do I adjust that? And yeah. that, you know, that's something I'm immensely grateful for is her patience and not her just being like, get away from me, you long haired hillbilly. Like yeah. that she was that she's <laughs> long haul. I mean, again, yeah. almost twelve years um yeah. with that we've been together. We got married uh coming up on seven years ago. But I, I, that's making me quite teary in a way because I think it's beautiful. A lot of people just give up. A lot of people just quit and give up because it's the tools, the communication, the therapy, it's all these elements and to really make it work. And I'm like, well, if you really love someone and care about this relationship, in my ethos, it's like you do everything you can to make that, to make that work. Yeah. 
Yeah. She has a, a, a saying that her, I think she got from her grandmother and it said half in jest, half seriously, uh, divorce is never an option. Murder on the other hand. Um, yeah. And I like, we, she would, her, I'm pretty sure it was her grandmother that said that because I seem to remember hearing her say that. But anyway, she'll say that sometimes we'll have a laugh about it. But the idea is like, it would take me doing something to warrant being murdered before she would consider you know leaving because she loves me it was you know she didn't get tricked into this she's here of her own volition the same way that i am and we believe that we also are both very much of the mindset that if down the road this doesn't work out neither of us are going to get married again like neither of us planned on getting married yeah like i was we were both honestly pretty like vehemently anti-marriage and and i think this is a cute little story the reason we decided to get married is the thought occurred to both of us in pretty much the same day what do we do with the dogs or what happens to the dogs rather if like the two of us if something happened like if one of us gets hit by a car Mm. um because if we're if there's no legally binding agreement between us then that means the dogs could in theory wind up with one of our parents and we're like we can't we can't have that no 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 these are our babies and so jen was actually the one that asked me she was like hey do you want to get married because I love it's that. Not. And I was oh. like, oh my God, yes. So we called our parents like that night or the next day and we we're like, hey, we're getting married. We didn't tell them until uh, like the night after the ceremony or something. It's like, so the main reason we did this was uh, we don't trust you if our dogs lined up with you. <laughs> and also we get a good tax break. But we didn't tell them that beforehand. But even before we decided to get married, the, like we were in agreement that we were in it for the long haul. Like we were, it was like, we're going to be with each other and we're going to do everything we can to be together until one of us gets old and dies and the other one yeah. goes and lives in a senior citizen home. Like that's it. That's great. And that means being ready to do the work. Yeah. And it means being ready to swallow your pride and be wrong about stuff, which again, as a man, very hard. Everyone will talk about it to an extent, but I, I feel like I want to explain like blow by blow what that looks like. Like when everyone's like it's painful and it hurts, like is there a moment where you're like, oh my God, I have to open up about this topic? And like, what did that look like? Is it like, I I just kind of feel like I, I want people to understand it was like, you know, I was choking up with words. I was crying. Like, because unless we really dive into it, I think men will just still have this like overarching topic sure. of like, oh, this kind of happens textbook, but that's not, that's not real to me. Like, I mean, I... There's not a single like levy breaking moment of this for me. There's yeah. a thousand of them, you know. Yeah. There's the everything from the first time. I mean, and this is more on the joyous side, but like the first time I said I love you to her and meant it was hard for me. It wasn't that I'd never told a woman I loved her, but I'd never felt it like that. And I I didn't have the vocabulary to articulate why that was scary for me. Was it overwhelming? I, uh, like, oh, is that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, like, I, like, I, I'm doing I, this for my female listeners too because we, we, we try to understand it's very difficult for us. We're wired very differently, mm-hmm. you know, like we will talk about it to death. So it's interesting to hear just how difficult that is yeah, to say. Yeah. Because it's essentially saying uh, I'm, I'm dropping the facade, I'm taking off the armor, here I am, you know, naked and entirely in front of you. At that point, it's like, now now I'm going to let you really see all of the parts of me that are like underdeveloped or malnourished yeah. or that I don't like. I'll, that implicitly and then later explicitly became, you know, or, or I guess like was the first step towards learning to ask for help when like, whether it's something like, um, well, on the most, I guess, uh, obvious end of the spectrum, when I, you know, have had thoughts of hurting myself and, and not just saying like, oh, I'm not doing well, but literally saying very cleanly, very clearly, I'm thinking about hurting myself and I need your help. Mm-hmm. Um, it hurts when I think about waking up or it hurts when I think about uh, going to sleep on the less but serious into the spectrum, but still heavy into the spectrum. When my dad died, I mean, like that is in many ways, the defining moment of my adulthood to date, it, it rattled me and put a lot of things in motion 
that ultimately have benefited me. It caused mm. me to ask a lot of questions about, you know, my relationship with my father and, and the kind of masculinity that I was socialized into. Because I thought of myself as a very, you know, progressive, open-minded, uh, feminist. But but I was yeah. I, I would do all that and I would, you know, lecture about it in my classes and stuff. But I I wasn't emotionally available. Yeah, that's what I mean. You it's know? like you're talking about it, but the the integration but, of it was... It was and still is hard being able to mm. say like you know to to just be vulnerable to just like look there are still a lot of days where the grief of losing my father or losing my sister or losing any number of my dear friends in the last few years is like yeah. right below the surface and on those days i can now say but for a long time i couldn't say this hurts whenever yeah. i see this thing or hear this thing or i smell this smell it's making me think of this thing and I need you to know I'm not mad at you. My silence isn't about you. I'm, I'm just trying to keep myself yeah. together. A useful phrase that helps me kind of shift out of all these, these thoughts is how do I want to spend my time? Because I don't know how much I have of it. Uh, how do I want to spend my time? Like, and I know I'm kind of tangenting a little bit, but it's important. Like that kind of brings me back and anchors me and, and at least can kind of, you know, compass me towards my joy. I, I, I absolutely think that that is an important thing for people to ask. And I think it's also important for us to recognize, uh, specifically in this case, the two of us, that we're in a place where we can feel so um, agentic in our own lives that we can make mm. those decisions. Or, or not even just make those, ask those questions. What do yeah. I want to do? Because there are certainly days, and I'm sure you can join with me on this, where what you want to do is like, if I can just make it through today, that's a victory. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the uh, the show on NPR, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It's, you know, NPR is, you know, it's public radio for white liberals. And it, look, I love NPR, so whatever. Um, yeah. But it's a, it's a comedy news show kind of thing. Um, it's very much targeted to people and they're like, you know, probably like 50s to 80s, but I right. I grew up listening to it because again, my parents were boomers. And the host of that show was recently on a podcast that I really like called Depression Mode. I don't know if you've- Oh, I've got to love Depression Mode, but Depression Mode. I'm seeing them here in New York. Oh, so okay, okay. So I'm so excited. Out, you should check out the podcast Depression Mode. It's with this guy, John Moe. He's had, his first guest of the show was Patton Oswalt. He's had uh, Kim Joy from The Great British Bake Off. Um, but he had, and now my brain just went blank, what this guy's name is, the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I'll think of it in a minute. But anyway, he talked about his own struggles with suicidal ideation. And he said that there was a point in his life where he said, if I don't end my life today, that's good. I, actually, what it, his exact phrasing was, um, I just won't kill myself today. He wouldn't make himself a promise about tomorrow, but he was like, that's good enough for today. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an extreme sentiment. Uh, and I had to catch myself almost like softening a little bit. I won't end my life. No, he, like, his exact wording was, I won't kill myself today. But sometimes that's enough of a victory. I'm mm -hmm. also reminded of a quote from one of my favorite authors, Harry Cruz. He's an old Southern uh, grit writer. And he had this, this line, survival is triumph enough. And to just make it through is something we shouldn't downplay yeah at the same time to recognize that if we are able to do more than just survive then to ask the question of what does it mean to thrive means that we kind of owe it to ourselves to try to pursue that as much as we can yeah but to not put ourselves up against this unattainable ideal to yeah. not measure ourselves against other people and look i say this as someone who does those things me constantly. too yeah but we, <laughs> we try we try not so with your wife then so who's the go-to like um do you have like what is the toolkit or the process for oh i'm not good do you let x y like do you let jen know do you let yeah How, so yeah. i mean it starts with personal inventory um one of the techniques that my therapist has given me is uh, you know stop sit it, it literally or figuratively sit in whatever you're feeling and do my feelings fit the facts like what is it that i'm feeling and does okay. it connect to what's going on around me? Am I angry? If so, why am I angry? Is the thing that I'm angry about worth the amount of anger that I have for it? And the answer can be yes. 
But if the answer is no, then to figure out, well, is there something else maybe going on? And then part of this inventory too is, to what extent do I feel like I can handle any of this on my own? Because I, I don't need to handle all of it and I don't have to handle any of it on my own. Mm. If, it, if I feel so drained, if I'm sleep deprived and hungry and you know whatever, and I'm just like run ragged, it's okay to go get in the van, lock myself in the van, call Jen and just talk. And I've done that. In fact, we've made a point of, of encouraging this not only within the band, but with our touring party, with our front of house and our tour manager, uh, with our, with what we're doing, you know, our tour manager is still working. He, you know, he's selling merch and stuff. Mm. Um, but it's always like, if you need to get out of there, let someone know, go get your space. And then when we get done, when the four of us get done, we often split up, like Zach will go do a thing. He, I mean, Zach is a brewer, so he'll go to a, you know, a nearby brewery and, he knows brewers all over the place or he'll try sure. a beer. Uh, Dave loves bookstores. I love bakeries. So I try to find <laughs> delicious bakeries. I'll note that when you come to Australia, find good bakery. Oh, for I, lo- I love baked goods. It's you love just... a lamington. Have you ever had an Australian lamington before? I don't even know what that word is. Oh my God. A lamington. Tell me about this thing. So this sounds so weird. So it's a stale sponge cake, which sounds messed up, you know, like a white, sort of vanilla-y, okay, okay. but it's a little bit stale with a chocolate coating and coconut all over it. It's called a lamington and it's an Australian, like you grow up on it. Why like, is it stale? It's just, just, just I think just, it came from it like a crispy French Yeah, beer? it's crunchy. And I think it also came post-war when they didn't, when they didn't, uh, they made things last longer. I think, but it was like, for me, when I was growing up, we would have lamingtons on the Sunday. And if you're really special, they'd have cream and jam. And anyway, yeah. Oh, now you're talking about like, yeah, yeah. It's all I, levels I, of lavington. Chocolate, chocolate is fine to me. Whatever. Uh, yeah. Cream and jam. I was like, hold on now. Oh, yes. cream. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> anyway, sidetracking on lamingtons, but yeah. yeah so, you, so, so having space. you know, so so having the two things there, having the 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 sort of routine of okay, after the show, um, everybody does their own thing, carves out their space for themselves, and whatever they want to do is fine. But also knowing that. One, we can all join together if we need to. If someone's having a bad time or if someone's angry, we can talk about it. But also that not only can I reach out to Jen, but, you know, she's not just a dumping ground for me. Like, she's she's still working when I'm on tour and she's yes. having to take care of both dogs and everything. So to know that, you know, she can call me. and She needs, you know, yeah. Exactly. And mm. that's, you know, in terms of the, the long list of things at which we have both worked and that we are still working it's making sure that we find time to talk to each other when i'm on tour because it's so busy it's so easy to like okay i'll talk to you on the next day off and that's in four days i think it helps that my wife has a very clear idea of how not glamorous it all is there's no delusion of like oh you know they live in like motley crew they're surrounded by beautiful women I'm in a van with five or six other guys and almost definitely everyone hasn't showered that day. She actually, like, and this is not to say that she doesn't miss me when I'm gone, but she has said on more than one occasion, she was like, it's kind of nice. Like the house is super quiet. Just me and the dog. Like that has been really cool. Are you go- so what's happening with touring and stuff? Because everyone's kind of back and happening and I'm seeing more and yeah. more concerts. So what's going on like with both bands and touring? Yeah, so I mean... Uh, Kemba started back touring last year, which was mm-hmm. wonderful. I mean, obviously financially much needed. So existentially satisfying to be back on stage again. I mean, I, I, I say to people that the stage is my church, you know, performing and engaging with fans is my spirituality. Like that is where I think something, what I think it is more than anything. So it is definitely that. I think there's a lot of little pieces to it, but the big thing for me is that it feels like we're making something bigger than ourselves in that moment, that we as the, are meeting the crowd and the crowd has to meet us halfway. Like we mm. can put on the performance of a lifetime and if the crowd's checked out, there's no magic. I will say I'm very fortunate to, to have had the experiences that we have of we've made music that affects people and that people are there to sing along to and to dance along to. And the experience what is created in that space that sort of sense of shared connection and purpose fills me with light and joy in a way that i 
I think everyone needs, but I know that I especially need, I mm -hmm. don't get it other places. Yeah. Um, or I don't get it from a lot of other places. Um, and so being able to do that, and then in addition to it, being able to do the tours that we've been able to do, touring with Mastodon and Opeth, touring with Trivium and Between the Barrier to Me and Whitechapel, you know, doing these big tours. And then we're about to go out and do a big headlining tour, our first headlining tour. It's, it's so nice. And it's so nice to, I mean, look, we're not out of the woods. COVID's here to stay. And mm. we all recognize that. We've all had it. Uh, a couple of us have had it more than once. Uh, I still have some of the brain fog. I still have some of the just like cognitive blips where just I'll be talking and then just everything's gone. I'll have no idea. I'll be like, where am I? And then I'm, I'm back. But for a while, um, yeah. not only when I was still testing positive, but for literally months after, there would be times where I would just, I'd be like in the living room and then suddenly I'd be in a different part of the house. I wouldn't know how I got there. Wow. Uh, That's it wild. It's very scary. And for mm. some people I, I know that have had it, uh, it has exacerbated certain facets of their mental illness. People with certain kinds of anxiety, it has seemed to really affect. I don't I mean, I couldn't say what the relationship is there, but there's something like it. You know, the fact yeah. that brain fog and long COVID are things shows yeah. that the virus does Impact. for some people affect their neurochemistry in a very good way. So yeah. we're still able to to an extent, you know, engage with fans again and sign things and take pictures. And there's, there's a risk and hopefully we're all being smart and being safe, yeah. but it's after so many years of, I say so many after, you know, whatever, two and a half years of limited social interaction at all, no shows, no touring to get back out there. It feels like not only do we have a sense of gratitude around it, but that fans do too. Oh, like, for sure. They're like, yeah. Oh, this can go away again this almost went away forever this i mean mm. covid killed a lot of independent venues in america yeah um it impacted a lot of a lot of bands that were going full-time stepped it back some are just not touring anymore you know it's it's a very precarious situation so we're trying to to yeah. still make sure we're feeling that gratitude around it oh i i cried just, after the first show we yeah. played back it was at uh, psycho las vegas and uh, we went out and played to a capacity crowd at the House of Blues. And like, I mean, I had chills walking out on that stage. Yeah. The, the, you know, and seeing people in the crowd, because at that point, everyone was still wearing masks. We hadn't had booster shots or anything at that point. And seeing people in the crowd where even with the masks on, you could see they were crying that this meant so much to them. I'm old and I have a bad back, so I had to go like lay in the bathtub for a little. But I like laid in the bathtub and cried tears of joy because I was like, I sincerely didn't know if I'd ever get to do this again. And the gratitude. That, mm. I mean, it was just overwhelming. And I was yeah. also in a luxurious bathtub in a nice hotel. And I was like, don't, don't lose sight of this. Like none of this was ever promised to me. We'll make it down to Australia. We want to make, we want to do Australia and Japan. You know, fingers crossed we can, we can make that happen. Next we can time. get you a Lymington. I'll make sure somehow we. Yes. Yes. Thank you so, so much for this chat. It's kind of gone in all different directions and hopefully it's been and been super useful. I've just loved talking to you. Thank you. No, this has been an absolute delight. I have really enjoyed this.